As I said earlier in in the prayer, and Brian and Dana are away on vacation, so over these next two weeks we'll have uh, myself uh, preaching this Sunday and next Sunday a guest preacher, but I want to thank uh, J.R. and Elise for uh, coming and helping us this morning. It's glad to have you. Um, please turn to Genesis chapter 32. Um, if you don't know where Genesis is, that's okay. It's an easy one this morning. Genesis is the first book of the Old Testament. We're going to be in chapter 32. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 32. And while you're finding that spot in, in the scriptures, I want to ask you a question. When we talk about this idea of, of God reconciling a, a people who are lost and wayward and broken unto himself, we call this redemptive history. And one question we ask ourselves is, is, is where did this history begin? Or better yet, the more appropriate question is, is, is who did this redemption of history begin with? It began with people. And then in our circles, we, we refer to these people that this, this history began with as the patriarchs. Okay, these are, the, these are the fathers. This is where everything started. Okay, and it began with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And it was passed down to Abraham's son Isaac. And, it, and this blessing was also passed down to Isaac's son Jacob. Well, I want us to consider this this morning. One scholar makes this point, and I think he's spot on. When we look at the lives of these patriarchs, these three men, good students of the Old Testament will ask themselves this question. What can we learn about God? What can we learn about his character as we study these patriarchs, these men, it's a great question. And here are his conclusions about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And again, he, he's spot on. This is what he says about Abraham. When we look at the life of Abraham, what do we learn about God? We learn that God is faithful. He's the one that starts things. And he is going to be the one who's going to be the faithful one in the relationship. When we look at, at Isaac, Abraham's son, what do we learn about God there? Not only that he will be faithful, but that he will continue to be faithful throughout the generations. Right? Well, what about Jacob? Here's what he says about Jacob. What do we learn about God when we look at this character? We learn that God will remain faithful through the generations despite us. Now, why would he say that? Well, let's find out. This is Genesis 32, beginning in verse 22. This is God breathed. The same night he arose, took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford, of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. And he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, would you now be merciful to us 
Lord, for you are strong and we are weak. We have scales on our eyes and our ears are stopped and our hearts are hard. And once again, Spirit, we have wandered into your territory. And Spirit, just as you inspired long ago these men who wrote the Scriptures, would you now illumine our minds and our hearts, cause us to see perhaps things we've never seen before, cause us to believe things perhaps that we've never dared believe. By your power and for your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Undoubtedly, it's happened to you before. And here's how it looks, all right? You're planning a vacation, okay? And so, you know, either through a brochure or through the Internet, you're going to find the hotel, okay? And so you're, you're scrolling through and, and, and you find the one, right? And perhaps it's, you know, it's because it's got this picturesque view of, 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 a, of, a, of an ocean view or, 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 or a marvelous view of like a, a mountain scene. But you decide, okay, that's the hotel, and so you book it. Okay, so weeks pass. You get on a plane. You're going to your vacation. You get there. You check into the hotel. You've got your bags. You throw them down in your room. You go over to the curtain. You pull back the curtain, and what do you see? It's not that beach scene. It's not that mountain scene. What is it? You get the rooftop view of the building next door, right? You know, the gravel rooftop, the one that's got, like, the big air conditioning unit sitting on top, steam billowing out of some un- unknown source, you know, probably from that really mediocre restaurant at the bottom of your hotel. You feel kind of duped, right? They weren't being dishonest. What were they doing? They just weren't being entirely honest, right? There's probably only like two rooms in that hotel that have a view like that, and you didn't get it. It might look this way. You remember when you were a kid and you went to the doctor, and the doctor needed to give you a shot? What did you ask? Is this going to hurt? How did the doctor respond? Oh, no, 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 no. It just feels like a bee sting. Bees hurt! I stirred up a yellow jacket's nest in our backyard last week, and I swear I felt like I was being electrocuted. I still have the whelps on the back of my neck. Bee stings hurt. Now, are they being completely dishonest? No. But are they being thoroughly honest? Are they shooting us straight? No. Isn't there something in you? And isn't there something in me that just really, when it comes down to it, we, we like being shot straight. Right? Don't Don Draper me. Right? And don't, as the song says, you know, accentuate the positive, eliminate the negatives. No, just shoot me straight. Tell me the good. Tell me the bad. Tell me the ugly. Please don't market me here. I just want the truth, the bare truth. Don't we all appreciate that to some degree? Don't we all want people to be honest with us? Well, there's a question that I want to wrestle with this morning that really deserves complete honesty. It deserves complete candor. It deserves to be, you know, for us as, as hearers, to, to be shot straight. Just tell me the truth as it is. And here's the question. What are we to make of this mortal life? When it comes down to brass, t- brass tacks, what is this life supposed to look like? And when, when I mean mortal life, what do I mean? I mean this life from birth to death. From the time when we're born until the time when our heart stops beating. What can we expect? Is, is anybody going to shoot us straight? And one commentator, I appreciate this. He says, you know, when you go to a bookstore and you go to the self-help section, you get, you know, a number of versions of, of the same truth, and it's this. You know, this life is, is about being centered. And it's, about, it's about being tranquil. And it's, it's, about, it's about finding inner peace. And you do this through yoga and meditation, fill in the blank, right? But isn't it hard to feel centered when you're looking cancer eye to eye? Isn't it hard to be tranquil when, for the last two decades, you've been at discord with someone in your family? 
Isn't it hard to be at peace when one of your loved ones, perhaps one of your children, is in harm's way? Is anybody going to shoot us straight? Is anybody going to tell us, matter-of-factly, here's the truth of the matter, here's what this life is supposed to look like. Well, the good news for us is that in our passage, the Lord, through this patriarch, Jacob, is going to do that very thing for us this morning. He's going to shoot us straight. No marketing, no soft-selling, no sugar-coating, Here's what the mortal life is. He says, it can be one of two things. It can be a fruitful struggle with the Lord, or it can be an endless struggle with the Lord. And the way this story begins, it begins with this endless struggle, this this man, Jacob, this scoundrel. But it turns into a fruitful struggle, and that's what we want. We don't want to struggle endlessly. We want to struggle fruitfully. But that's just what it is. And the Lord, in all candor, is saying, hey, look me in the eye. This life's going to be hard. It's a struggle, but it's fruitful. Hang tough. Okay, so three things I want to look at this morning in relationship to this, this fruitful struggle um, that this mortal life is. I want to look at the problem. Okay, what's, what's the main issue here? I want to look at the solution. And then lastly, I want to look at the fruit. Okay, what's, what's the real problem here? Now, when we read this passage, there's a whole, this, this, this passage has confused people for ages. All right? This passage is very confusing. And this passage is full of problems. And what we want to ask ourselves this morning is, what is the primary problem? What is the primary issue here? Okay, and we're tempted to think one thing is more important than the other. Okay, Jacob has two problems in this passage. And what he is doing in this passage is he's making the secondary problem the primary problem. He's making the secondary problem the primary problem. What's the secondary problem? That's the problem between he and Esau. Okay, now Esau's nowhere in this passage. We haven't even mentioned his name yet. Esau is Jacob's twin brother. Esau is the firstborn. Jacob is the secondborn. Where are we right here in Genesis 32? We have this, this odd narrative where Jacob is, has, has crossed the river. He has his two wives. Okay, he's not home. He has his maidservants. He has his children. He has his livestock. And, and he, he's, he's sending them forward. And where, where is he sending them to? What, what's going on here? Jacob is about to meet his brother Esau for the first time in a really, really long time. And this is not going to be a cordial family reunion, right? The relationship between Jacob and his brother is sordid at the least. If you don't know the story of Jacob, hear the cliff notes. I'm going to try to be as brief as I can. And literally, it begins at birth, literally. They're twins, okay? Esau is born first, and Jacob is is this rascal, He wants the blessing of the firstborn. And so at birth, what do we see? We see Jacob grasping the heel of his brother as as he is coming out of his mother's womb. It starts as birth. Fast forward a couple years. The Lord has announced to Jacob's family, to Esau and to Isaac and to his mother, and has said, As I have been with Abraham, as I have been with Isaac, I will not be with Esau. I will be with Jacob. Jacob is going to be the patriarch, the secondborn will be the patriarch. I will do my business through him. Now, this is what the Lord has announced. And rather than waiting um, for his father to bless him, and rather than waiting on the Lord's timing, what does Jacob do? Prematurely, before it's time, he, he tricks his brother and deceives his father. Right? You remember the story? He puts on a, a fur, so he kind of looks like his alpha male hunter-gatherer older brother, which is what Esau was. He was the firstborn. He was the man's man. Jacob was the mama's boy. Jacob got the brains. Esau got the brawn. And so what does he do? He puts this fur on and he goes to his father and says, Bless me, for it is I, Esau. And what does this do? What does his father do? He blesses him. What happens when Esau finds out? 
Esau goes off the handle. He's upset. He's angry. He's frustrated. He's destroyed. He realizes now that he's not going to get two-thirds of the inheritance. He's going to get the second-born inheritance. And he's angry, and he vows that he's going to take the life of Jacob. And when Jacob finds out about this threat upon his life, he flees. He goes to his uncle Laban's house. And there he gets a taste of his own medicine, right? He's deceived by his uncle Laban into a false marriage. It's a legitimate marriage, but not to the person he thought it was. So then he marries the right woman. And then he deceives his father-in-law out of livestock, out of the choicest of livestock. And then the Lord appears to Jacob three times and says, Jacob, Laban's house is this way. And if you're the patriarch, you're going the wrong way. Canaan, your father's land is this way. You need to go back. If I'm going to complete what I'm, if I'm going to accomplish what I'm starting in, in, in your life and in the life of the patriarchs, you've got to go this way. And so, in our story, where we're coming in this morning is, is we're, we're anticipating, we're expecting this encounter between Jacob and his estranged brother Esau, and we're tempted to think, as, as dangerous and as perilous as this encounter is, it's not the primary issue. It's dangerous, right? Jacob learns that Esau is on his way to meet him with with 400 men. How would you feel? You'd say, you know, probably first and foremost, this is my greatest concern. But that's not what the text says. Because before Jacob and Esau come face to face, Jacob comes face to face with something else. He comes face to face with the Lord. Look with me again here at verses 24 and 25. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the break of day. When the man saw that he could not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now, we later learn to find that this man is is no mere man. This man is the Lord. He has emptied himself of his glory, and he has veiled himself in human flesh, and he has come down to wrestle with Jacob. And we're, we're forced to ask the question, why? We thought the quarrel was between he and Esau. Why is Jacob... And the Lord wrestling together, because simply put it, that's the primary issue here. That's what's at stake. It's not Jacob's relationship with Esau, it's Jacob's relationship with the Lord. Now, when the Lord appeared to Jacob and he said three times, go back to your home, when he committed him to go back, go east, he also included with that command a promise. He said this, I know what I'm asking you to do, but know this, I will be with you. I will protect you. You need not fear your brother. You need not fret. Go, and I will go before you. Three separate occasions, and with no amount of ambiguity, the Lord says, Go home, I will be with you. Go home, I will be with you. Go home, I will protect you, and I will be with you. And so here we're on the ford of this river, and Jacob's about to enter into his family's land. Let me ask this question. Because what we're looking for here is is genuine faith, right? We're looking for for a a man to go, You know what? I'm going to believe what the Lord says instead of what my eyes see. We've talked about faith over the last couple months, and Brian has used this definition before. I want to piggyback off that this morning. Faith is trusting in the Lord despite what your eyes see. And what does Jacob see? Jacob sees his brother and 400 men coming towards him. He doesn't know his intentions. But why is this an interaction? Why is this a problem with the Lord? Because the Lord has promised to keep him safe. But Jacob won't believe it, right? For Jacob's entire lifetime, he has been wrenching and wrestling a blessing from the world. He did it with his father. He did it with his brother. He did it with his father-in-law. 
And you see what he's trying to do here now? He's trying to do it with the Lord. He wants the promises of the Lord. He wants to be the patriarch. He wants the blessings of his father's land. But you see what he's doing? He wants it without the Lord. He wants to do it himself. Same old Jacob. He's the self-preserver, the self-promoter. Fine, yes, we will go that direction, but I'm going to do it my way and on my terms. I'm sending my cattle over. I'm sending my wives over. And I'm not actually sending them all. I'm actually splitting it in half because if Esau attacks, I'm sending my other half this way. And if they're attacked, then I can at least get away with half my stuff. The Lord's not fooled. What's primary here? It's not this interaction between Jacob and Esau. The real struggle here is between Jacob and the Lord. See, Jacob's what we call a a nominal Christian, which really isn't a Christian at all, right? He has a history with the Lord. He knows the promises of the Lord. He's informed. He knows the Lord's reputation, but he won't bank on the Lord. That's a dangerous place to be in. Now, back when I was in school, I had a dear friend in in seminary who, who didn't just get sick. He got really sick. I'm not talking about like pneumonia. Um, he, he was so sick. And one of the symptoms was, you know, he had, he had swelling of the brain. This, this fluid was building up in his brain. It was putting pressure on his skull and pressure on his eyes. And the doctors had no idea what it was. And I'll never forget it. I went to visit him one day in the hospital. And, and, and I saw his wife leaving the room. And we met about halfway down the hall. And I just said, you know, what's the latest? And she said, there is no latest. We don't know what's going on. The doctors can't find the problem. And if you can't find the problem, you can't find the solution. They have no idea what's going to happen. And, and she had tears in her eyes, and she was, she was broken. She was distraught because the doctor said, if we can't find out what's going to happen, he's only got about a week or two left to live. They didn't know what the problem was. Well, th- this pain went on for a while, and, and after a season, there was this one specialist, this one doctor who came in. And if I remember the story correctly... He came in to try to figure out what was, what was wrong with, with, with my friend, and, and it only took him a few moments. He didn't draw any blood. He just did a couple you know, brief exams, and he said, you know what, I think your problem is I, I, I think you have Lyme's disease. And sure enough, they ran a couple tests, and, and they found the source of the problem. He did, in fact, have Lyme's disease. And his treatment began immediately, and his recovery was, was very short. And he recovered you know, remarkably well. Isn't this statement true? If you don't, want, don't know what the problem is, you can't begin to look for a solution. Or to say it another way, if you, want to, if you want a solution to a problem, you first have to know what the problem is, right? In this passage, Jacob's eyes are horizontal. He thinks his problem is with his brother. He thinks it's his family dynamics. And the Lord enters the narrative and says, no, you're missing something bigger here. Let me act as a specialist. You know what the real problem is here? Your real problem is with the Lord. Okay, now what are we supposed to do with this? Just a a brief thought. Would you be willing to consider that perhaps, much like this specialist who came into my friend's hospital room and said, I think I know what your real problem is, would you be willing this morning to let the word of the Lord act just like the specialist, to come into your life and just say, you know what, I'm looking at all these symptoms in your life. And, and can I be up front and say this? I, your, your struggle is not with, 
with cancer. Your struggle is not with that family member you're estranged with. Your struggle is not with, with injustice or an idea. I think your struggle really is with the Lord. And you might be saying, well, I don't, I don't buy all this Lord, God, Elohim, Yahweh stuff. And, and, and I say to you, that's okay, because neither did Jacob. He didn't buy it either. But that didn't make it any less true. Would you be willing to consider perhaps for the first time that, that what you're struggling with really isn't that disease? And what you're struggling with really isn't that disconnection with, with, with a family member. Really what the source of the problem is, is a disconnection with the Lord. And before we can start to even talk about a solution, we first have to identify the problem. That's where the break is. That's where the disconnect is. It's not with things on this earth. It's actually, it's actually with the Lord. Well, if that's the problem, then what is the solution? And, and again, in the spirit of candor and full disclosure, you know what the Lord says in this passage is the solution? It's to be defeated by God. It's by pain. Right? The Lord's going to shoot us straight. This struggle is going to hurt. It's going to be difficult. Well, how do we see that? Look with me at verse 26 and 27. Look back at your text. Notice this, this verbal interaction between Jacob and between the Lord. Verse 26, Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Now, I'm no wrestler. Right? I didn't wrestle in, in high school. But I know this. If you're in a wrestling match and you want to forfeit and you want to give up, there's a signal that you give that says you're done that this match is over, that you are giving up, you're forfeiting the match. It's called tapping out. What you're doing when you're hitting the mat with your hand is you're saying that I've been defeated. You're, you're signaling to your opponent and to the referee that this, this match is done and that you're forfeiting and the other guy wins. Well, what we see in this passage is we see Jacob doing something like that. We see Jacob forfeiting. We see him tapping out. And we see that in a number of different ways. Again, look, look again at the verbal exchange between Jacob and the, and the Lord. First in verse 27. And he, the Lord, said to him, Jacob, what is your name? And Jacob said, it is Jacob. Kind of seems like an odd point for introductions, right? Is, is, is the Lord asking because he doesn't know? No. There, there's something deeper going on here. And, and, and we don't understand this because we're 21st century Americans. You know, when we pick a name these days, we pick a name that, that, that sounds nice or that perhaps has some sort of family history to it. Like when people pick names... In the Old Testament, there was deep-seated spiritual meaning behind it. Remember Hannah? She prayed for ages and ages that she would have a son. And when the Lord blessed her womb and gave her a son, what did she name him? Samuel? Because it sounded nice? No. What does Samuel mean in the Hebrew? The Lord hears. And the Lord listens. You know what Jacob means? You know what Yaakov means in Hebrew? Deceiver. Heel grabber, one who causes another to trip and fall. That makes parties a little awkward, right? Hey, what's your name? Samuel. The Lord hears. What about your name? Ah, Jacob. I'm deceiver. Right. Note to self: Don't take a ride home from this guy. Imagine walking around your whole life with that name as you introduce yourself. Who are you? What is your identity? I'm one who strives. I'm one who deceives. I'm one who manipulates. I'm one who connives. That's who he is. 
that's his identity. Do you see what the Lord is doing when he's asking Jacob his name? What is he asking him to do in the same breath? He's asking Jacob, do you really know who you are? And do you truly believe that you are what your name communicates? Do you believe that you are a deceiver? Do you believe that you are a scoundrel? Do you believe that you are a wreck? Do you believe that you are who the gospel says you are? And what does Jacob say? He says, yes, I am Jacob. I am my namesake. It's a form of a confession. But it doesn't stop there. In one sense, we see Jacob sort of letting go and kind of confessing, yes, I am the Jacob. I am the scoundrel. But notice what else he says. And look with me at verse 26. The Lord says, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now, we're tempted to think, okay, this is Jacob just being, you know, being adamant again. You know, trying to seek a blessing from the Lord. But there's something else deeper going on here. What he's actually admitting here to the Lord is that he has done things the wrong way for his entire life. How do you see that? Remember, Jacob has wrenched a blessing from the world any way he could. He has manipulated, he has, he has lied, he has deceived. And he has sought to, to wrench a blessing from the world by whatever means possible. And do you see what he's saying here now? He's saying, I've sought blessing in the wrong place. And now that I've wrestled with the Lord, and now that I've come face to face with God, I realize where true blessing comes. I'm putting aside this old life, the old ways. Lord, only you, and you only can bless me. And what happens? The Lord does. How do you spiritually tap out? How do you wrestle with God? How are you defeated by God? By being weak. And perhaps maybe for the first time you're hearing one of the great paradoxes of the Christian life. And it's why in our assurance of pardon, it's why we use the passage we use. This is Paul, remember? The Jew's Jew, what does he say? What a wretched man I am. Only when I am weak am I strong. And that's the great paradox of the Christian life. When we are weak, we are strong. It doesn't say when I am strong, then I am strong. No, it's when we're weak. Well, how are we weak? We're weak in our confession. Do we really believe that we are who the gospel says we are? Now, some of us say, yeah, 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 you know, I'm, I'm, I'm flawed from time to time. No. Are you willing to put the banner of Jacob over your head? Just like him. That's me. I'm a scoundrel. I've sought to wrench a blessing from, those, from this world, and I've sought to receive it from everything except the Lord. I am Jacob. Jacob not only kind of gives us an illustration of what it means to be weak, but notice there's there's another illustration here, and we're we're tempted just to kind of look over it. Notice and and remember that Moses is writing this this Old Testament. He's writing the Pentateuch. And at this point in the story in verse 32, he steps out of the narrative. He's telling a story, and he he stops the story, and he steps out, and he says, like, like in the narrator's voice, and by the way, get this. Okay, look at verse 32. Notice what happens. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Now, we're tempted to think here, okay, this is, you know, this is like the, the, the rabbit's foot or, or, or the four-leaf clover. You know, they're just being superstitious. Right. Do you see what they're doing? Do you see what they're doing? They're saying, like Jacob, we too are weak. 
And we don't want to forget that. We want to embrace our weakness. We want to believe that we too are helpless before the Lord. We too believe that our strength only comes through confession and through weakness. And to remember that, we're actually changing our dietary practices. I mean, imagine for the first time, you are the nation of Israel and you're hearing this story. You've been defined by God as His people. You, as a people, are Israel. You're hearing the story for the first time and when the Lord blesses Jacob and He says, your name is no longer Jacob, your name is what? Your name is Israel. Why? For you have striven with the Lord and with man and with men and have overcome. Imagine hearing that for the first time as Israel going, wait a minute, that's our name. That's us. Jacob's our patriarch. He's in our family tree. That guy? Yikes. But what do they do? They embrace it. They embrace the weakness. They embrace the brokenness. They say, unless we are weak, then we will never be strong. And they sought to remind themselves of that. Do you see what they're doing? It's, it's a beautiful Ebenezer, if you know what that means. Lastly, the fruit. How do we know that we're wrestling fruitfully? How do we know that we actually get it? And they're not still in our own flesh, but that we have truly been blessed by the Lord, that we truly believe that we are no longer what the gospel says we were, broken, scoundrel sinners, but we are true sons now that we have wrestled with God and that we have survived, that we have overcome, that we really are new people, as Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians. The old is gone, the new has come. You truly are blessed. How do you know? Well, just to put it simply, how do you respond to pain? How you respond to pain really shows your cards. Isn't this our natural reaction when, when calamity comes upon us, when a tree falls in your yard, or when something bad happens? A tree fell in my yard this week. We're tempted to think this in a heart of hearts. We may not say, but we think this. What did, I, what did I do to deserve this? Really? That? Another deductible? But if we are given eyes of faith with the Lord and we know that our struggle is not with trees, it's not with Mother Nature, that our struggle is with the Lord, and that this struggle is oftentimes painful and momentary, but it's not fruitless. It's for our own good. Then when pain comes into our life, we can say, okay, my battle's not with this tree. It's not with Mother Nature. It's with the Lord. And He means this not, not for my, my destruction, but for my edification, for my growth, for my understanding. Well, do we see that here in this passage? Do we see Jacob exhibiting this kind of behavior? And the answer, briefly, is yes. Look with me at verse 30. Notice Jacob's response. Notice the self-preserver. Notice the egotist's response. So Jacob calls the name of this place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Now, if, if you were the self-preservationist and the egoist, and you were to come face to face with God and win, you'd tell some people, wouldn't you? You'd say something along the lines of this, I've come face to face with God, and I won, by the way. Did you see that? All I got out of it was a limp. But I beat him. But that's not what Jacob says. What does he say about this pain? What does he say about this limp? What does he say about this, this personal and this painful interaction with the Lord? He says, I've seen God face to face, and I've lived to tell about it. There's something more important here than my pain. There's something more important here than my personal experience, that I have come face to face with the living God, and He has spared my life. Remember what the prophet said, no one sees God and lives. Except Jacob. 
He knows that He's been afforded to survive so that He might broadcast this kindness, this grace of the Lord to His people and His generation. He needed something to break the mold, get Him out of His old lifestyle. And oftentimes the Lord uses pain. And at this point you might just be saying, I'm not in. I don't want that. I don't want pain. And if we're honest, a lot of us don't either. But consider the man or the woman who's suffering from a heart attack. Uh, their heart has, has literally stopped beating. And, and, and we know that if oxygen isn't supplied to the brain after you know, a certain number of minutes, you can cause irreversible brain damage and you can die. And so what do we do with people whose heart has stopped? What do we do with people who's, who's, whose faith has flatlined? What brings a dead heart back to life? Is it not the electrical shock from, from the paddles of the defibrillator? Right? It's painful, isn't it? It hurts, but it's better than the alternative, isn't it? And that's what we say when we interact with the Lord. And when He wakes us up with pain, we say it's, cosmic, cosmically speaking, it's better than the alternative. I'll take pain now for blessing. That's how to take the fruitful, that's how to make the struggle fruitful instead of endless. It's looking at pain and saying, This is not God's frustration with me. This is not God's judgment against me. He's trying to turn my heart. He's trying to be gracious towards me. Let me close uh, with this. Every story is about Jesus. And that's not us being clever. Uh, That's not our sort of corner on the market is what we truly believe is true. There is one hero in Scripture, and that is Jesus Christ. And in every, every way when we study these characters, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they all point us to Jesus in some way. Either there's a similarity or there's a big difference. And in our passage this morning, there's both. Consider this. We have Jacob. We have this son, this scoundrel who struggles to earn a blessing, right? And he's wounded in the process. He receives a wound. In the same way, when we look at the life of Jesus, aren't there a number of similarities? He too is a, is a son. But instead of being a second born, he's the rightful heir. And his life is full of pain. His life is full of struggles, is it not? He was alone too in the dark. And he experienced personally the pain of Calvary. All the wrath, all the judgment of God, so why? And here, notice the difference. Why did Jacob, Jacob strive? He wanted a blessing for himself. Right? He was self-centered. And the question I want you to consider this morning, why did Jesus strive? Why did He labor? So that He could keep the blessing? No. And this is the good news. So that He could share this blessing with scoundrels like you and like me. So that slaves, people like Jacob, could be called sons. That we too could have a name change. Friends, this is what we celebrate when we talk about the doctrine of adoption. We were once slaves, but through the work of Jesus Christ, we are now considered as sons. You mean we get the blessing? We get the riches? We get the promises? And we do. Well, how do we embrace it? Again, this morning we're talking about faith. How do we, how do we latch on? How do we know that we, we, we're truly believing in God's work on our behalf? Paul says... You must rest and receive in the work of Jesus Christ. Well, what does it mean to rest and receive the work of Jesus Christ? What should we do in response to this? What should Jacob have done when he was on the ford 
uh, of this river, about to face his brother. What does genuine faith look like? I want to close with this. Over the last six or seven years, as many of you know, I, I do love watching movies, and I love following directors, producers, writers. And one of my favorites is, is Christopher Nolan, okay? And he writes, directs, produces. He does everything. And he has rebooted, as, as many of you know, <clears throat> the, the Batman series, right, over the last several years. And, and something happened in between the second and the third movie that most people don't know. And at, at this point, you know, these, these, these two movies have just blown you know, the top off the box office, right? Christopher Nolan has made a name for himself as a writer, as a producer. I mean, he is, he is now top shelf you know, Hollywood material. <clears throat> in between the second and the third movie, he's looking for a villain. He's looking for an actor to play the role of this villain called Bane. And so he calls up this guy, his first choice, this guy who he, he's had his eye on for a long time, and, and, and he calls him up and says, this, this, this actor's name is Tom Hardy. He says, Tom Hardy, this is Christopher Nolan. I want you to consider a part. You know what Tom Hardy says? He says, say no more. I don't need to know what the part is. I don't need to look at the script. I don't need to know anything else. I'm in. It can be the worst part in history. I don't care. I'm in. And we go, why? Why at that point in, in, you know, in his career would you so blindlessly and, and, and perhaps perilously throw yourself into a movie like that? It's because he trusts the writer. He trusts the director. He trusts the producer. He's seen his work in the past and says, I know this guy is not going to make junk. You don't have to tell me anything else. The phone call is enough. I'm in. And in some ways, for the first time, perhaps, we are hearing that call for the first time. And, and, and know this. Know who it's coming from. It's, it's coming from a straight shooter. Someone who's not going to bait and switch you. And it's coming from a good and a powerful and a loving God that wants to turn slaves into sons. What does it look like to rest and receive? Just say, Lord, like Jacob, I'm a rascal. And I've been doing it wrong my whole life. I want to do it your way. In Jesus' name, rescue me. Let's ask the Lord for faith. Let's pray together. Lord, all of us need greater faith from, uh, from the young to the old, from the seasoned saint uh, to the skeptic. Father, we recognize and we admit that faith comes from you. It's not something we can stir up in our own heart, but it is a precious gift from the Father. Would you be kind? Not because we ask, not because we're using the right words, and not because there's anything in us that deserves it, but Father, would you once again... Show yourself merciful, show yourself kind, show yourself gracious, grant us greater faith, and some of us for perhaps the first time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.